This is from the chapter of Mark. Oh, sorry, the book of Mark, chapter six, starting at the 14th verse. Hold on a second. I want to make sure you are on the money. Yep, says she's on. Okay. Okay. Hey, oh, right. look. This right. is from the book of Mark, chapter six, starting at the 14th verse. King Herod heard all of this, for by the time the name of Jesus, for by this time the name of Jesus was on everyone's lips. He said, this has to be John the baptizer come back from the dead. That's why he's able to work miracles. Others said, no, it's Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet, just like one of the old time prophets. But Herod wouldn't budge. It's John, sure enough. I cut off his head and now he's back alive. Herod was the one who had ordered the arrest of John, put him in chains and sent him to prison at the nagging of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had provoked Herod by naming his relationship with Herodias adultery. Herodias, smoldering with hate, wanted to kill him, but didn't dare because Herod was in awe of John. Convinced that he was a holy man, he gave him special treatment. Whenever he listened to him, he was miserable with guilt and yet he couldn't stay away. Something in John kept pulling him back. But a portentous day arrived when Herod threw a birthday party, inviting all the brass and blue buds in Galilee. Herodias's daughter entered the banquet hall and danced for the guests. She dazzled Herod and the guests. The king said to the girl, ask me anything. I'll give you anything you want. Carried away, he kept on, I swear, I'll split my kingdom with you if you say so. She went back to her mother and said, what should I ask for? Ask for the head of John the baptizer. Excited, she ran back to the king and said, I want the head of John the baptizer served up on a platter and I want it now. That sobered the king up fast, but unwilling to lose face with his guest, he caved in and let her have her wish. The king sent the executioner off to the prison with orders to bring back John's head. He went, cut off John's head, brought it back on a platter and presented it to the girl who gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and got the body and gave it a decent burial. At this point, yeah, at this point, we're really happy the kids have kid boxes, so they didn't hear <laughs> any of that. <laughs> Fantastic. How many of you remember uh, seeing the Hallmark movie on John's death? How about the children's books? Any of you watch the children, read any children's books on John's death? You're lying because those things don't exist. <laughs> there is no Walmart. Yeah. Ah, all right. You know, the reason why you probably don't remember reading this to any kid or having it read to you is because it probably shouldn't be. This is a horrible, horrible story. Horrible. You got, were you paying any attention at all, right? Uh, this guy, John the Baptist, he got beheaded at the whim of a middle school year old girl because the king didn't have backbone enough to say, I think this sets a bad precedent for the future, right? That's what we have. By the way, when I asked you to say hello to each other and what are among your top questions that you shared with each other about what you'd want to hear from God, how many of those questions that you have, those top questions that maybe if you get to heaven, you'll ask someday, how many of them have something in some way to do with the subject of pain, suffering, or evil in the world or injustice, something like that. All right. I would say that among all human beings everywhere, that's got to be at the top or close to the top of everyone's list. Why 
do awful things happen, especially to people like John the Baptist. Do you remember who this guy is? This is the precursor to John. His birth narrative is right up there in terms of cool factor with Jesus's birth narrative. Cool things happened that led up to John's birth, being born to very, very old parents. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy cool story. Read it or catch the movie, whichever way. It's really cool. Uh, and he's the guy who apparently lived his life really, really right. He kind of dressed the part of Elijah and preached with the same kind of passion. When people saw him, they said, man, this guy is on fire for God. This guy is sold out for God. And he drew crowds. Along the Jordan River, he'd baptize people, which was a way of saying, I'm ready to have a new, new chapter in my life. It was sort of this obvious sort of cleansing thing that happened. And it was just a way to say, I'm cleaning up my act because you're saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's like God's going to do something and I want to be ready for that. I want to get all spiffied up, uh, just clean up my life in every possible way. That's, that's what we see in John the Baptist. And he also uh, was no coward uh, when he was up against political pressure. You just read this story, right? Where uh, the guy in charge of the region where he lived, he didn't mind calling him out for marrying his brother's wife while she was still married. And in order to make that happen, divorce the wife that he had, which caused major political problems. John the Baptist didn't have a problem saying, what I'm seeing in you, political leader, is wrong. By the way, this sort of gets rid of that nonsense statement about the, the faith not speaking into politics. Oh, yes, it does. It does. And so you see John the Baptist saying to the leader, We've got a problem here. What you did is an offense to humanity, to love itself and to God. And when religious leaders came around, uh, heard about John, probably a little curious, probably a little worried about where this thing's going to go, they come and they see him doing his thing. What does John do at that point? Does he roll out the red carpet? Does he hand them his resume and say, hey, you got anything for me up at HQ in Jerusalem? Because I could really use getting out of this dump. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he goes the other direction. <laughs> he points them out. The leaders from the Jewish faith, from Jerusalem, the big dogs, he points them out and says, you brood of vipers, who told you to come and hear this news? <laughs> he does not hold anything back. This is who John is. The guy is totally sold out. He's wearing camel hair. He's looking a little nuts. And everybody who sees him is like, wow, something must be up. God must really be doing something. And then what happens? He does everything right. He even was humble when he needed to be, by the way. When Jesus hits the scene, what does he say about Jesus? This is the guy I've been telling you about. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. This guy is so special. He baptizes Jesus. He's one of those that sees this some kind of anointing of the Holy Spirit happen on Jesus. John is totally fine taking a back seat. Even when John is disturbed by what he hears about Jesus and his theology, because Jesus was disturbed by Jesus' theology, he sends word from prison, hey, Jesus, you said some funny things there about some biblical interpretation I've never heard before, and I'm a little concerned about that. Are you really the guy that we thought was coming, or should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus doesn't spar with him on scriptural interpretation at all. 
He just simply tells John's disciples to go back and report on what he's done. I'm healing the sick, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the captives are set free. These are the things that God is about. These are the things that are happening through me in spades. So John has the capacity to be humble. And how is he rewarded for all of his spiritual maturity and acumen? Imprisoned? Executed. By the way, uh, the historian Josephus uh, recounts John's death differently, which is fascinating to me. They say nothing of this exchange, of this party, of any of this stuff whatsoever. And he's looked at as a reputable historian of the day. In Josephus' account, uh, John was imprisoned, and he was eventually executed in some prison near the coast. So why? Why do we have this story? We'll go nerdy on this at Praxis this midweek if you want to play with that, because there are a lot of themes here that we could, we could really jump into. But the short answer to the why we have this story is because we really need it. We need it. We need to be faced with this story of one that none of us can argue with in terms of what he was about or his character or his stellar uh, experience and his track record and all that. We need to be able to see exactly what's happening here that to that point, the most, most faithful in Israel, clearly anointed by God, did everything right and then got slaughtered. Suffering happens, even to those who do everything right. And the reason we need that story there is because every one of us struggles with that story. Why? There's a, uh, in Green Lake, Wisconsin, our denomination, American Baptist Churches USA, uh, was very broad umbrella and very diverse theologically and ethnically, and it's, it's, it's great. Uh, we have a conference center, and at this conference center, you can climb up a hillside, and you will see a sign that says Hope Vale Cathedral. Hope Vale Cathedral. It is a copy, uh, if you will, uh, a remaking of a cathedral on a mountainside that was made in the Philippines. In 1941, 12 hours after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Japanese soldiers invaded the Philippine Islands. American Baptist missionaries were there, along with two missionaries from Japan who fled the country. And they knew that the Japanese soldiers uh, were not going to be graceful with them. And so they fled wherever they were up into the mountains. And they made camp up there. And you can see a diagram to this day in our denominational's archives. It kind of looks like a church camp layout. You've got different cabins. You've got kind of a mess hall. And right there on the hillside, you have this Hope Vale Cathedral. They called the, the encampment Hope Vale. And pastors from the surrounding area uh, would bring them food and sustenance so that they could make it. And make it they did. For like 15 months, uh, they made it until the Japanese soldiers arrived. And at their arrival, every single one of the 12 
in that missionary encampment, including one child, was beheaded. How do we make sense of this? What do we do with it? This is incredibly perplexing, and it's very challenging. It's one of these things that we're sort of afraid to even ask the question so as not to offend God, because that's a fear. And we live in a culture, we live in an incredibly wealthy, prosperous, powerful culture that peddles a version of Christianity that says that it's basically transactional. You say the right things, you get other things. You live a certain way, it's going to get better for you. Uh, in, in grand, exaggerated terms, this is called the health and wealth gospel. Uh, you just name it, claim it, and it's going to be yours. I've seen on TV uh, this right before my eyes with a stadium filled with people, of people coming on stage telling stories of how they chose to be faithful, that they were out on their luck, they had bad physical health, they just lost their job, they were just about to kicked out, be kicked out of their place, and they had nothing to their name, and then they just trusted God. They just prayed the right prayer, they just wrote a last check to this particular ministry. And lo and behold, in a week or 10 days time, everything turned around. They got the medical attention they finally needed. Uh, they got a job offer that paid more than they did before. And they have a new place to live that was better than what they had previously. And the crowd erupts, celebrating the goodness of God. And so it's, it's very, very captivating and very tempting to want to buy into that kind of a gospel. But then there's John the Baptist, who was the example par excellence of faithfulness, of writing his last check, of doing it right. And yet he got beheaded. And of course, the martyrs are innumerable over time. Part of the challenge in even asking the question and dealing with this subject is that we want to be careful uh, to not give any appearance of not believing what we've said we believed, hoping to get the reward. Because we've been told if we renounce what we say we believe about a certain thing, God will also renounce us. And so we may have said the magic words, we may have done the things that we were pretty sure were supposed to work out and make sure that we had a good, safe, nice life, but in our heart of hearts, we got bigger questions. And we're, we would just love to say, God, if you're really that good, what the heck? What is going on? If we're honest. But we can't even ask the question. Because our, our hearts, our minds, our faith is saying, if I doubt God on this, if I doubt this transactional faith, could I lose my eternal hope? Is that possible to do? And who would risk it? So I'm giving you permission. Uh, I talked with God about it. It's all good. For the next hour, I'm not going to last an hour, but for the next hour, 
you are able to muse on questions that you dare not ask and hold them and wonder about them uh, so that you would be free to be vulnerable. And by the way, if you get in trouble with this at the end of your life, blame me. <laughs> I'm blamed for lots of other stuff. We might as well put it on the list. Okay. So I, because there is no, um, there is no offense to God in asking the most penetrating, most difficult, challenging questions that we as human beings face. So free pass, let yourself go. You know, part of the problem is, is uh, has to do with our theological perspective. And most of us, I'm going to get a little nerdy here just for a moment. Uh, most of us adopted a theological perspective that was handed to us from generations past. And honestly, if we just do a little bit of research, it's pretty obvious that most of us in the United States really haven't done a lot of research on that. Even the most devout Christians in the United States as a whole, like, like as a whole, um, only a small percentage of them have even read the entire Bible or even read much of it at all, let alone read any academics on what those texts might mean. So what that means is it's very easy to assume that the faith of one generation has just simply been adopted by the next generation to the next generation to the next generation, which may, in fact, include you. And there's a weird mix, mishmash of beliefs that don't necessarily agree with each other in there, but we'll never know until we actually pull back the hood and take a look and see what we're really dealing with. And one of these issues that comes to play is a decision that we need to make, a fork in the road, if you will, in the world of theology. And it has to do with what is going to be the primary characteristic of God's nature. What is the primary thing? because it has to be one thing or another in this very grand equation. Is God's primary characteristic in nature love, uncontrollingly, unconditionally loving, or is it all-powerful? These two, in some cases, are mutually exclusive, which is why the choice has to be made. If God were all-powerful, I mean really all-powerful, there's a whole lot of stuff God would not do because of God's love. There's a whole lot of stuff God would not allow because of God's love. Recently, um, a place of our own, uh, the, uh, the preschool that meets here, like very recently, like yesterday, their 34-year-old director died Friday, uh, and we don't know why. 34 years old, a lovely person, doing good work, loved by her staff. If God is all-powerful, if God loves to, how can that happen? How can a nanny um, from Paraguay who's just visiting the United States to take care of a three-year-old, how come with so much life ahead of her, how come she was crushed to death by the Surfside condominium collapse? And by the way, we're just scratching the surface, right? Because we can all come up with all kinds of examples, both far parts uh, in, the, in the world and very close to your home about things that you personally experience that you're thinking, if God was really almighty, then God is not at all loving. Because if a good person knows to protect that from happening, 
and God didn't do it, and if our mortal minds can figure that much out, and God can't, clearly God <laughs> does not know a thing about the complexities and fullness and breadth of love. So the, the cop-out, the, the trump card, if you will, on this uh, is the, you just have to trust God. You just have to have faith. And that's problematic. There is a whole other way. If we say that it's the uncontrolling love of God, if that is the primary characteristic, well, that opens a world of possibilities that actually make a lot of sense. And there's a book that just came out uh, 10 days ago called Open and Relational Theology by a guy named Thomas J. Ord. And you can read about this very different perspective where he helps you look at the toughest questions that you didn't think there were answers for, and he gives you reasonable answers for them. And at the end of his book, uh, can, can probably win you back to faith that you didn't even know was possible. But for now, we're stuck with this angst about the bad things that happen when we at the one time say God is completely powerful, knows everything, capable of everything, is able to do everything, is unchangeable. We have all sorts of statements that we say about God. God is immutable, meaning uh, there is none other like God, that God is perfect, is unchanging. That gives us confidence. And yet, <laughs> and yet our unchanging God, I'm just messing with you a little bit here just for sport now, but this unchanging God uh, who has it all together, who has all the power, who's got it all figured out, who knows what's going to happen in the future, we still pray to this God asking for that God to change anything. This is just one example of how our theology doesn't match up with our practice. If we believe that God never changes, if God's already got it figured out, why pray? It doesn't make any difference to the situation. Do you see what I'm saying? If that is the case. Now, I'm all for prayer, but I think there's another way to understand it, which is depth, uh, has depth and meaning and beauty and makes sense. But that's another sermon for another day, because I want to get back to John the Baptist. <laughs> Keep you wanting more. I want to start here with John the Baptist and realize uh, that he had a pretty good idea what was coming. And one of the reasons why we have the story in the Gospels about John's beheading is to look at it and why one of the reasons why it might not be, there's a couple different reasons why it might not be in Josephus' uh, historical review, is because as far as the Roman government was concerned, who cares? <laughs> why are we going to waste ink on this Jewish guy who was an upstart, who clearly ticked off the king? and was causing problems, he's just another Jewish guy that we killed that day. He was just one of a dozen. I'm surprised his name even got mentioned, because that's how the Roman government basically felt about the whole thing. And that's how the Roman government felt about Jesus as well. Jesus who? <laughs> he's just another guy who's going to get crucified today. They don't care. Here's what I want you to do, just to kind of play this out. I, I, I've given you the freedom to ask tough questions and think tough thoughts. This is one of those tough things I want you to think about. I want you to imagine, this is going to sound a little John Lennon-y, but I want you to imagine if all the reasons that drew you to faith in the first place, forgiveness of sins, healing, heaven, 
all of those things, I want you to imagine that those things are now off the table. They no longer exist. They're not allowed to be a part of your equation at all. Okay? So your reason for hope for a future, like, like that's no longer the reason why you're, you're choosing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as a Christian person. The forgiveness of sins, no longer relevant because there's no longer a heaven there to look forward to. The reason this is terrifying is because for some of us, that's the only reason we got in it in the first place. <laughs> you take that away. Your question is to me, well, yeah, why would we stick in this thing? And that's exactly what I want to take you to. Take away all, all the prizes. Take away all the prizes, all the stuff, all the transaction stuff on the other side of if I do this and God's going to do that. Take it all away. Take it all away from your imagination. And just let yourself sit in a box a comfortable box, <laughs> and ask the question, what do I want for my life? If I don't have to worry about a God judging me, not keeping me out of heaven, if I don't have to worry about the wrath of God, if I don't have to worry about sin anymore, what do I want for my life? Think about that for a moment. What do you want for your life? And Maybe that will lead to other questions like, all right, so I kind of have an idea of what I want for my life. And for my life, that's I want, I want love. I want, I want a, a rich life. I want happiness. I want joy. I want peace. All the fruits of the Spirit. I want that. And as I think about it, I really, really, really want that for my wife and my kids too. I really want that for them because I love them. And even my extended family. I'll even go that far. And the longer I sit with this, the longer I sit with this, uh, the boundary of who I want to experience all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, generosity, self-control, all these things which are all rooted in love, that, just, that circle just keeps expanding. It goes to perfect strangers that I don't know anywhere. It even goes to people I hate, people I can't stand, really. Even people in history who've done atrocious things, it even goes to them. If I think about what do I really want, I want, if Hitler were still alive, I would want love for Hitler because maybe love would have changed Hitler. I think about the planet. I think, all right, well, that's what I want for my life, what I want for every other human being. What about the planet? What do I want for the planet? Forgetting all the stuff about Genesis 1 and how we are commanded to be good stewards, to take care of the planet. Forget that because there could be some wrath. If you don't do it right, it could be trouble. Just what do you want for the planet? What do you want for the creation? Man, I think you're probably like me. I want it to last. <laughs> I want my kids to enjoy it, and my grandkids, if they're already, and way down the generations, and even children of children of children of children, many generations of people I don't even know, I want there to be a there there for them to enjoy. 
when we sit in that kind of a space and wonder what do we really want apart from all of the accoutrements of reward and without fear of punishment, that gets us to the essence that Paul was talking about to the letter to the people of Ephesus when he said, in Christ, we find out who we are and what we're living for. Why? Because Christ is that presence of God who is the ground of being. That is the root of all of life. And so when we tap into that root and focus on that and know that root well, like Paul did, we find out who we are and what we're living for. We realize that long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eyes on us, had designs on us for glorious living. We were supposed to thrive. Part of the overall purpose is he is working out, he is working out in everything and for everyone. This is good news. This is good news. And it takes us right back to John the Baptist. Because I wonder what John the Baptist would have thought if he was in that comfortable box asking these big questions. I think he would have thought the same things. Because I think he was tapped into that very spirit of Christ himself. And I think he knew what was, what, was, what was real and right in the world, what harmony and wholeness and shalom that we talk about was all supposed to be about. And he could not talk about it. And sometimes it came back forcefully to a person like Herod saying, man, you are messing this one up. You are messing lives up with what you're doing. Can you see this? And to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, you're a brood of vipers. You guys are living large while the people you're supposed to be serving are, are dying of starvation. You are restricting the grace of God from the very ones who need it the most, the people you're condemning. He was so grounded in that, so rooted in Christ. He knew who he was, knew what he was doing. And if he had to do it all over again, he'd do it all again. You know, one of the reasons why is because John knew, like any human being who's paying any attention at all knows, we are all going to have a, a fair amount of suffering in our lives. You are not going to get away from it. It's going to happen. So might as well live your life in a way that leads to love for yourself, for others, for all of humanity, for all of creation, even if it's going to lead to suffering. Because guess what? Suffering's coming down the pike no matter what. Might as well might as well be doing it about that very thing, which leads to life and love and liberty for all people and creation itself. It's something that's worth living for, something that's worth suffering for, something that's worth dying for. There are many ways to choose, my friends, in this life. There are many paths. Some of those paths are very, very wide, and there are a whole lot of people on it. But the way, Jesus said, that leads to life, the eternal qualities of life, is a cow path. And few are on it, because few really embrace it and see it and choose to follow it. You are invited to ask these questions to wonder who you are, what you're really about, what do you really want? Because if you tap down into that, you will find Christ. And Christ will say, I want what everybody wants. Love for all, love for everybody in the best possible, most just way it can happen. What do you want? Do you understand the invitation that is before you? Isn't it worth taking the risk? for the sake of what it is, 
not because of any rewards or punishment. Do I still have hope in something after this life? Absolutely. Do I still have hope that if I lead my life in the way of Jesus, more blessing than curses are going to come upon me? Absolutely. But I don't do it for that. I do it because this, this is a deep, rich way of God. Sometime in the 1940s, um, there was a, a man who felt a call to go into the mission field. Now, you may have different feelings about uh, missionary movements uh, coming from the United States into other parts of the world, and you have a right to do that. Uh, a lot of the American missionary movement within Christianity wreaked a lot of imperialism and just going and you know, shoving a Christian Americana down other countries' faces and all that, which is not always done well. I don't want you to get distracted by those realities. I just want you to hear about this guy who was convicted about the power of God working in his life, so much so that he was willing to devote his entire life to going overseas and remote parts of the world, likely suffer, so that other people, indigenous people, in fact, could hear this good news of God, because it just might change their lives. It might improve much in their culture, especially in cultures where there was horrific violence and mistreatment of women and children. The good news of Jesus brings healing and hope. And so uh, James Elliott, Jim Elliott, uh, went into Wycliffe, which is a highly regarded uh, missionary training institute. And in the early 1950s, he and three other missionaries uh, went down to Ecuador, camped out in a city for a couple of years, and would make their way to a riverbank uh, near an indigenous population uh, in Ecuador that had never really interacted much uh, with white people, uh, with civilization. And so um, over a couple of years' time, uh, they would grab a pilot, and they would like drop goodie baskets. Uh, to sort of warm them up. Nothing like, you know, fresh home-baked cookies to, to really set the stage, right? So they would, they would provide nice things so that the people who are the indigenous people uh, would recognize that they, mean, they don't mean harm, uh, goodwill offerings, stuff they even need. And then they'd land the plane a couple times and uh, hang out there. And they'd also have a loudspeaker. They'd say things in their native tongue uh, to let them know they meant no harm and they just wanted to be friends. A couple times when they were on the riverbank, um, a couple indigenous people one at a time would come out. One guy uh, came out and asked them questions and was curious about this flying machine. So they gave him a ride in the plane. How wild would that be, right? Uh, just to help warm them up. Another person was a woman that they had conversation with and everything just seemed incredibly wonderful. Like it was really going to work out. So in 1956, in early January, they set up camp on the riverbank. And on January 8th was going to be the big day when these four missionaries uh, were going to walk into the jungle and finally extend the hand of friendship and start a beautiful relationship uh, with these indigenous people. But lo and behold, uh, the indigenous folks beat them to the punch. And there was a welcoming party that came uh, to see them. Ten soldiers, in fact, warriors, each with an eight-foot spear. And so Jim Elliott went to go greet uh, his new friends and was immediately killed with that spear along with a friend who joined him, along with every missionary and the pilot. Their bodies were thrown in the river, mutilated, and were found miles downstream sometime later. Why in the world 
Would you risk doing that? Why in the world would you risk doing that? Unless you didn't feel like you had any other choice, not because of threat of hell or reward, but because that's where the richness of life shows up. Jim Elliott, in his own journal, about a decade before this happened, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Very shortly after uh, Jim Elliott uh, was killed, his father flew down to Ecuador and gathered a team of guides, probably armed, and went to the spot where his son was killed. And they found the indigenous tribe. And through a matter of interpretation, they were able to isolate the very warrior that killed this man's son. And you know what this father, who's still grieving the loss of his son, did? He looked at this warrior in the eye, he walked up to him, and he embraced him. He said, because of the grace of God, I forgive you. That's power. When we meet Christ, we find out who we are and find out what we are doing. Will you meet Christ again? Let's pray together. Wake us up, God. Wake us up. It is far too easy to have a lazy theology, a lazy faith, not that we're all called to Ecuador, but that maybe we are called to think a little bit more about what we really believe, to find out the depths of your love, your joy, your hope, your peace, everything that you are. God, help us have the discipline and before the discipline, the desire that maybe there is so much more to define us, to guide us, that is worth living for, suffering for, even dying for. May we start to find it all over again, like a treasure hidden in a field that we protect like something that once we find, we can't help but tell everybody about it. Because when we find Christ, we find ourselves. And we find a meaning for living. God be with us. God move in us. And just a, just a moment of silence, my friends. Is the Spirit of God doing anything in you today? I bet so. Maybe it's a question, maybe a nudge. Can you at least identify that one or two things? God, we see it. We sense you working in this space. We pray for your Spirit's help to bring this seed to its full fruit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.